Corey. This is Tuesday, February 9th, 2016. This is the Reading Odyssey's um, Livy Call, books 28 and 29. All right, so let's, um, we have a lot, lot going on in these two books, of course. Um, and so let's start, as we often do, with, um, with favorite passages and see where, where the discussion takes us. Uh, Therese, let me let me call on you to to start us off here on on favorite passages. Oh, I'm, I'm, I picked kind of a terrible passage to talk about, but it was so remarkable that I felt like it was worth talking about. Um, Give us a page. Pardon me. Oh, page. Well, um, so it actually begins. I have to mark my notes here. Hold on. Um, it begins. On page 525. 525. Okay, hang on a minute. Let everybody get there. All right, 525. Okay. And. With Flaminius and the stolen silver cup. Okay. So basically, one of Flaminius's men were in. Um, we are in, and I'm blanking on. Oh, Locri. Right. Um, we're in Lothian and Rome is occupied and Flaminius has been left in charge and there's been a lot of abuse of, of the townspeople and one of Flaminius's uh, men, Flaminius is a legate, um, who's left in charge, one of his men goes into someone's home and steals a silver cup. And on his way out, two military tribunes, Sergius and Mastianus, um, catch him and, you know, say this is wrong and basically a fight breaks out and um, and Flaminius's men take a beating, and in retaliation, Flaminius ends up uh, flogging the military tribunes. And in turn, while that's going on, the military tribunes uh, cohorts have arrived in town, and they see what's going on, and they they fence off Flaminius and isolate him from his men and viciously maul him, uh, cutting his nose and ears off. And so it, it goes on from there. Um, so from 525, we then uh, go on to, um, I guess, the next, the next place where we're talking about it. Let me find out here. I'm um, sorry. We go over on um, page 534. Okay, 534. Okay. Well, hold on. Let me see if I'm in the right place. Where the Locrians uh, address the Senate? No, so Scipio was called in to have a hearing about all of this going on, and I think it kind of goes to, it struck me because Scipio in many ways offers clemency to so many of the people that they conquer. And yeah. it was remarkable to me because he comes back from the fauna, he's called in to deal with this horrible situation. And after hearing the cases presented to him, he exonerates Flaminius of anything, and then still leaves him in command and basically leaves. And to me it just kind of seems like it was an irresponsible thing to do. Um, and then yeah. later, um, there's a delegate who goes to chapter 16, which I think is in, um, on page 534, and the delegates come before the Senate. And this is a, a, a bit of time on, and they're talking about the abuses that have been going on in Locri, and, and it comes to light from these delegates who arrived before the Senate in rags, um, talking about all that went down and how severe treated the situation, and the Senate was completely outraged and, you know, 
called in Scipio to account for it and, and reprimanded them. And, and eventually they were going to put somebody in some trial and then he ended up dying in jail. But it was just really remarkable to me, first of all, that that kind of thing happened between Romans. And also when, when Rome, you know, especially with Scipio offering clemency and understanding and, and really incredible forgiveness probably for political gains so often. In this case, this is just a complete abuse of these people, I felt like. So I thought it was remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. One one of the things that um, that I think this passage, especially on page 534, points out, one of the where the the um, delegation from Locria are addressing the Roman Senate yeah. is that Rome was actually the first city in history, the first empire, I suppose, in history to show to have any legal framework for non-citizens under its control to uh, address and come and bring Roman citizens to to justice based on abuses. Uh, no, no previous ancient Greek or other city that we know of had had such a legal framework. And um, it's it, it, when you read Livy, it, it you know it doesn't necessarily come across that as an innovation in that way. Um, but I so I agree with you that I mean this Scipio was both blind in this instance where before he had. He had seemed to always have such a good sense of what was going on, and how to um, uh, and how to address the situation with revolts of different allies and so on in the way he he's treated them. But in this case, he seemed to be blind. Um, and well, you know, I don't know. I don't know. So what do you think, I think Frank? Maybe Scipio decided that he had more important things to concentrate on at that moment. Like going to Africa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and trying to blind idols, going on a locally, which is just a bunch of Greeks living you know, uh -huh. way in southern Italy. Yeah, maybe no, nothing would come of it, and maybe he wanted Centaurus to be, you know, in reserve for some bigger duty in Africa, and maybe something will go away. But sure, sure, Frank. That no, that's a that's a fair point. I hear you. Cool. Anyone else want to remark on these passages? I, mean, I just want to know how does somebody like survive not having a nose and ears? Honestly, how does that happen back then? Well, I guess he didn't survive very long, right? <laughs> he did. I know, but for a while he did. I mean, they said he recovered from his injuries and was still. Some, was someone there trying to say something? Yeah, I think so. Well, Sinus kind of cuts. Uh, they cut um, Jack Dixon's nose, and he was he was recovered still. That? I'm sorry. Say that again, Frank. The movie Chinatown that cuts back. The movie Chinatown that cuts back to the nose. You don't tell the tale. Right. The movie Chinatown. Good point. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know, Therese. I don't think we have a doctor on the phone today, but I guess. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's possible to survive for at least a certain amount of time, either in the movies or in, or in. Uh, or in his military literature. <laughs> All right. Well, Frank, since you... Uh, I, had a, I had a thought. Yeah. Um, no, go ahead. Uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, I, I think it's sort of represented that Scipio, this is his one area where, in terms of handling uh, internal problems, 
uh, within his soldiers. Sometimes he gets it right, sometimes he doesn't. I mean, there's this sort of section in uh, uh, earlier on where it, it said, uh, you know, on 481, you know, while Scipio was well acquainted with warfare, he yeah. had no experience of mutinous outbursts. Right. Uh, the situation had him worried. He wished to avoid excess, whether it be in tolerating the armed coordination or in punishing it. Uh, for the moment, he decided to continue with the lenient course on which he had embarked, uh, et cetera. In other words, I, I think he's still feeling his way about how to handle You know, I, I agree with uh, what Frank said. I mean, he's so focused on uh, invading Africa, and in some ways— uh, he doesn't necessarily have a great handle on how to on how to deal with uh, mutinies or or uh, problems like Mokri. Yeah, yeah. Good. And who who was that talking again? Just remind me the voice. Stuart. Stuart, thank you. So everyone can get get used to our voices. All right, good. Frank, what about you? Did you have a passage that you'd like to share? I mean, what I thought was a little humorous was. Uh, and my, my pagination is different than everybody else's. So well, why don't you tell me what it is, and then uh, I can find it in ours. Uh, it's kind of um, going from Book 29, uh, probably through Chapters 29 and 30, and just the whole... Give me, uh, give me a few words. I'll look it up in my Kindle version, and I can find the exact reference for everybody. Give me a f just a two or three words. Uh, I don't, although the I don't know. Chapter 30, so maybe... No. Uh, but the mass of a uh, Mesolanian surrendered to Spions. Um, okay. I'm just going to say, oh, yeah, I think we all remember, you know, there's this incredible ability of Massinista to guys keep escaping from the clutches of the Carthaginians and, 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 and the Spianks. And just, you know, everywhere he's trapped, he finds a way out. Everywhere he's trapped, he finds a way out. Then finally at the end, you know, shows up with 40 horsemen. This is the Romans hit hit Africa. Yeah, I just thought that whole sequence was just you know a wild west story. Yeah, he's now escapes, you know, and the the cavalry coming and the, and the <laughs> you know and the, the, the you know the, the very charming villains getting away until they wound up you know on the side of the good guys as the cavalry comes to fight the Mexicans or whatever. So it's, I thought it was just a really funny back and forth and just so contrived as to how he kept escaping and getting more friends and you know. Narrow passes and, and ledges that I thought it was a really nice story that kind of echoed into the uh, 1800s in the United States. Yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a there's a lot to say about about that, right? And um, you know, obviously, this is after um, this is taking place as Scipio is coming to Africa, so we haven't. We haven't yet gotten into the uh, debate that happens at the end of um, chapter 28 between um, Fabius uh, uh, Maximus and Scipio, right? And so uh, we'll get to that in a moment. But you're right. It did, it did sort of have a kind of uh, <laughs> Keystone Cops, I don't know, <laughs> Western comedy aspect to it, those scenes are just one thing there to another. another <laughs> there was another scene too that had, I felt that way about, and I don't remember where it was, it was in um, book 28, but it was when they were in their boats and the way the, the 
body of water that they were in just kind of threw them around and they couldn't control their boats and they were ramming into their own boats and you yeah. know they tried to hit someone with their the front of the boat but then they'd get turned around and it would hit them on with the side of the boat and it just seemed to me very comical and i i just had this image of bumper boats <laughs> or you know like bumper cars the bumper boats just everybody right. just kind of no control and people just hitting each other and whomever and I found that very, I don't remember. Right. I don't know if somebody else knows where it is in book twenty-eight. Um, I think I think it's is it when Hasdrubal oh, is escaping. Um, you know, basically, is that is that when it is when he's his army is kind of falling apart and he's escaping back to Carthage. Is that is that when it is, no, or no, did it right. happen I, earlier? The action was. I think if I recall the scene, they almost start fighting by accident. They both wind up in the same harbor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. They're fighting. Like what happened there? Holy smokes! It's on. It's on page 488. Excellent. It goes to 489. Yep. And it's about midpoint in 488. It talks about they're going out, the tide gets a hold of them, and all of a sudden, they're just wild west ride. Uh, yeah, the tide had removed all means of effectively steering the ship. It did not even look like a naval battle. That whole... No choice of movement. Yep. No yeah. skill, no tactics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bumper cars. Me, bringing the combatants into collision with their own as well as the other side's vessels as they vainly attempted to row <laughs> in the other direction. One could see a ship that was in flight spun around by a swirl of water and carried against the victors, one in pursuit turning as if to flee to hit um, a contrary current. It just seems very comical, that whole section, and it does go on to page 489. Yeah. And there's no real victor or, or loser either. It's just like a comic, you know, comic scene. Yeah. Uh, I like the part where the one boat was just going nuts, and it, it basically sheared off all the oars on one side of another boat. Yeah. Because they had no control. They were just flying down the you know, in the water, and it just ripped off all the oars. Yeah, boat. that's near the end of the first paragraph on 49. And would have wrecked all the others she overtook had not Ed Herbal raised the sails and made it across to Africa with his five remaining ships. Um, yeah. All right, good. All right. Uh, by the way, has anyone else joined us? Andre, Bruce, anyone else on the line? Yes, I'm here. Mr. Andre, excellent. Yes, I'm yeah. here. <coughs> Bruce is here, too. All right, good. Bruce, why don't you give us a favorite passage of yours? Yeah, I was just, I was just hurriedly looking for it. It was kind of around Scipio's... Unfortunately, I only read all 28. I didn't read 29, 30. The, so deba the debate there. at the end with... It was more his, yeah, his, his um, address to the people... Ah, the mutiny? Uh, yeah. The mutiny, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll tell you where that is. Um, people are motionless like the sea. It's on pages um, 41. It starts on 481. This is... Uh, but the... It, uh, 483... No, 43, never did I think I would find myself lost for words with which to address my army. And then... On 44, no, the fact is, like the sea, every crowd is naturally motionless. Is that the, is that the one you wanted to read? 
the one. Yeah, that was the one. You want to read us that section? Uh, and the responsibility and cause of all your wild behavior lies with the ringleaders. You cost the insanity from them. It seems to me that not even today you are aware of how far your madness went, of the extent of the outrage you dared to inflict on me on your country, your parents and children, the gods, to witness your oath. You seem unaware of how far you violated the offices under which you fought. Military traditions and discipline of your forebears, the majesty of our supreme command. Yeah. Yeah. And then he shows no mercy on them. Yeah, so what did you think about his decision, the way he handled the way he handled the mutineers, basically uh, you know forgiving the majority of the army and beheading the the ringleaders? Um, well, I guess it showed some restraint, right? I mean there's uh, there was uh, other times I can't put my finger on it when he he showed a lot more um, broad uh, mercilessness against people. Um, it's like it's, it seems like he really comes down to loyalty. Loyalty, uh -huh. such a huge emphasis placed on loyalty, um, and just showing your your um, your uh, subservience to Rome. If you're willing to do that, uh, this is for for strangers, for Spaniards and other tribes. I think so many of them um, definitely shows mercy on. on and some of them, unless unless they showed some kind of betrayal of that, like some some of these tribes were never friends with Rome, but it seems like the ones that had pledged their allegiance and then went back on it, um, and he he was a lot more unkind to. But um, I guess maybe he's smart enough to appeal beyond go over the leaders and appeal and win back the loyalty of the mutineers because he might need them. Now let's remind ourselves, in this case, I'm sorry, go ahead, Frank. I was going to say, I, I agree. I mean, he needed the soldiers, so if he could execute 35 guys, keep, you know, a few hundred, you know, in check. Whereas, you know, you have, you know, they put the Spaniards who were basically barbarians, so you really have to punish them because that's all they understand. I mean, that was probably the Roman mentality. And so yeah, I think it was really pretty evident how they dealt with two groups of people. And especially in Spain, later on, destroying complete towns and killing everybody. I mean, just like, show no mercy and just, you know, go fall in line. Yeah. <clears throat> I thought it was much more, you know, much more modern day-ish as far as, you know, what do you want to say, ISIS. It's like, you know, kill, kill the bad guys, you know. The people that we view as bad guys just punish them, you know, very harshly, and everybody else just, you know, fall in line. Right. But that was it. This passage on 490 where he says, um, uh, mm -hmm. but now he was happily and confidently proceeding to a massacre of the Illardides. The Illardides were not born in the same land as he, nor was there any treaty binding them to him. The only ties they had with him, those of loyalty and friendship, they had themselves broken by their crime. In his army, he said, he could see men who were all citizens, allies, and Latin. They were, he was very moved to see that they, there was barely a single soldier who had not been brought to Italy, either by his uncle or by his father or by himself. Anyone else have a point of view on this, the treatment of the mutiny that Bruce has brought up here? I was, this is Teresa. Um, I was just 
Therese. I was struck a little bit by it, and granted, you know, Scipio wasn't around when this happened, but I'd always had uh, compassion for the remnant of Kanai, the men that were taken prisoner and who were treated so badly and sent off to Sicily and stripped of their rights. And it was surprising to me. I understood because I felt like if he were to punish the mutineers, I mean, that's a lot of men that he needed. And I felt like that was probably a political move on his part, but it seemed out of step with, with what had happened with the men of Kanai. And I, I just found that interesting. That is interesting, right? They were treated much more harshly than those who actually directly mutinied um, uh, later there in Spain by Scipio. It's a good point. All right, let's. Yeah. Uh, I think part of that. Go ahead. Eric, yeah. I think part of it, whether you're treated differently, is Scipio is a much more. Uh, I think a much more gifted leader. Yeah. With a long-term view. Yeah. So what he's going to do is brutally execute the folks that uh, instigated the mutiny to make his point this is totally unacceptable. But then he kind of wins over all the rest of the mutineers by being somewhat magnanimous and generous and giving giving them that long speech about um, being a citizen, being a Roman, what it means. I just thought it was a, a wonderful leadership uh, point on him, given that difficult situation, the way he handled it. Yeah. Felt really pretty, pretty smart. Yeah. Uh, sounds right to me. All right. Let me call on someone else here. Uh, Scott Thompson, what about you? Favorite passage? You with us, Scott? You on mute? Mr. Thompson. I know you're on the phone, unless you had to step away. All right. Bill Swizzle. Hey, hello, everybody. I'm sorry. I, okay. I muted myself. I uh, it's, uh, it's page 478. Okay. 23. Okay, hang on. The, uh, hang on, hang on. Let us get there. 478, 23. Okay. Yeah, and it's the, it's the revolt of Icosta, I believe it is. But there's this horrific scene where the, the people of the city have basically decided that their own women and children will die, yeah. and all their, yeah. that all their treasures will be destroyed. In the city, so the path, you know, the, while the while they're getting slaughtered by the on the outside, it says another grimmer kind of slaughter was going on in the city. Scores of weak and defenseless women and children were being murdered by their own citizens, who were hurling bodies, most of them still breathing, onto a burning fire. Oh, a streams of blood choked the rising flames. That's and eventually, these men too, exhausted from their pitiful slaughter of their own people, flung themselves and their weapons in the midst of the fire. And then the Romans come on the scene. And they're horrified for a moment, and then they start trying to steal all the gold <laughs> that's in the uh, that's in the plane. <laughs> um, and I, I just, it's just it's just such a stunning passage. It says, "Then, with the greed inherent in human nature, the soldiers tried to snatch from the flames the gold and silver that glittered among the pile of other articles. Some were engulfed by the flames; others burned by the blast of hot air. With the huge crowd pressing forward from behind, there was no way for those at the front to step back." So it was this, that Estapa was destroyed by fire. It was just, a, I mean, just a, I mean, it's clearly, I'm sure it sounds great in Latin. I mean, I'm sure it's a regular piece of writing. Yeah. But it's just such a stunning, it's just a, such a stunning thing to, to, to imagine happening. Hey, Andre, do you have the Latin nearby? Can I say that again? Do you have the Latin nearby for this passage? Um, um I 
don't, but I will look for it. Tell me again the uh, chapter twenty-three, book twenty-eight. Yes, sorry, it's it's the twenty-eighth book and it's the twenty-third chapter. Twenty-eight, twenty-three. Okay, I'll 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 find it. Give me a sec here. All right. Well, you look around for that. Um, anyone else want to respond? And let me call on some we haven't heard from. Uh, Nan, I don't know if you have something to add about this scene before we get to your favorite passage. Well, actually, um, my kind of, I just don't really have a favorite passage per se, but I just felt like the, this, there's a lot more comment on human nature in these books. Uh-huh. And I stopped actually writing down his little pat snippets. One of them was that part that he just read about the greed, the greed yeah. inherent in people on page 478 was one of the passages I wrote down. Um, another one was two pages back on 476 um, where he says, uh, I'm trying to find it. It was above... About the men fighting. Yeah. The elder man had um, come. Yeah. They could not be made to abandon such folly. Yep. And the elder... There was something... Yeah. An illustration of how great how, a curse... How great a curse lust for power is among mankind. That was the line. Yeah. They could not be made to abandon such folly, and they provided the army with an outstanding show and an illustration of how great a curse lust for power is amongst mankind. Yeah. And then um, on page 479, on the top of that page, people have an inherent love of deliberately exaggerating rumors. And I just think of today with the media and the tabloids and everything. <laughs> and then in on page 490, like I said, I stopped writing them down because it just seemed one after the other. Yeah. Um, And I think it was um, at the top of page 490 is in my note. Middle, no, middle first paragraph. Um, oh, I think that, that was, we had mentioned this too, uh, how he was happily and confidently proceeding to a massacre. And I just, that yeah. just struck me as so odd, like happily proceeding to a massacre. Just, <laughs> I just felt like there were all these comments about mankind and how horrible we are and, and lust for power and lust for greed and you know how we like to see other people taken down and um, yeah this, this, for some reason these stuck out more and more in these two chapters than in past chapters happily proceeding to a massacre it's true that's a chilling <laughs> chilling language well, well how, how different is that from you know I want to see the sins in Iraq and Syria grow. Say that again, Frank. You know, and how different is that from Cruz saying, "I want to see the sins of Iraq and Syria grow"? That's oh, death. right. I mean, not to inject politics, but you know, just the same imagery of you know, yeah, horror and destruction still lives lives today. Yeah, when you agree with the sentiment or not, it's still in people's minds. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and hell hath no fury like a vengeful warrior. Uh, Andre, have you found the Latin for book 28, chapter 
looking for it. Um, I, I don't have I don't have a, a book copy, so I'm looking on Perseus online. So oh, sure, fair enough. I, yeah, this is a great great passage, but we got I gotta check the Latin. Give me, give me another couple minutes. Okay. All right. Cool. So, Nan, thank you for that. Those were great. Those were great um, quotes. Um, well done. Who else? Let's see. Harry, I don't think we've heard from you, right, on a favorite passage. My favorite passage is early in book uh, 28. It's on page 470. 470. Uh, halfway down. All right. Hang on a second. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Yeah. Four seven zero, about halfway down. Let's just let everybody get there. Yeah. Seven. Chapter seventeen. Uh, seventeen there, and uh, so Scipio goes off to Rome to report that basically everything's been brought to under control of Spain. Yeah, and uh, and then it says halfway down that paragraph, Scipio had an insatiable appetite for deeds of courage and true glory thought the recovery of Spain was little compared with the goal on which his hopes and noble aspirations were focused. Okay, and then at, then at the bottom of the page, he, he wants to go talk to King Syphax, uh, who's located basically in Algeria today, where it's known as you know, Algeria today. And he's going to make a deal with them, try to bring them over to the, the Roman side as, a, as, a, as an ally of sorts. <clears throat> So he heads off to go talk to King Syphax, and that's on the next page, 471. And um, as he arrives in the harbor, Hasdrubal shows up as well. <laughs> so you've got this weird situation where you have two major commanders from opposing forces show up at the same time to talk to this king, and they can't really fight fight each other because they're guests in this guy's territory that they're trying to win over. Right. So um, it's like a weird timeout, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, nobody dared make further trouble since they were both, since they were in a harbor belonging to the king, King Syphax there. So then Syphax thought it was just marvelous, as indeed it was, to have generals of the two richest nations of the time come to seek a peace treaty with him on one and the same day. So he offered the two guys hospitality, and and, and Scipio had to tell the Carthaginian that he, he couldn't talk uh, talk specifics because he had to go through the Senate to get authorization to do anything like that. So the king put considerable pressure on him to accept the invitation to dinner along with Hasdrubal, and, um, and, they, and they had dinner together. And, and it's just amazing. I mean, I... I can't recall any of the histories I've read where two major opposing force commanders basically had an opportunity to sit down and really have just dinner and, so, and socialize. Yeah, on the I same mean, couch. It's, 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 just, <laughs> it's, it's just amazing, you know, and so I read that and, and I was just intrigued by that. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall there. And um and it has Drupal made it very clear they had a great, greater admiration for the man from having finally seen him. Um, and, he, and he, quote, did not doubt that Syphax and his kingdom would soon be in the power of Rome, given, you know, uh, uh, the powers of yeah. persuasion and sociability that Scipio had. And then 
and then 472 about halfway down, he's, there's a line, no, he harbored ambitions of making himself master of Africa, talking again about Scipio and his ambitions. And then the last sentence there, halfway down the page, that kind of sums that up was Scipio made a treaty with Syphax and learned the last Africa. But I mean, I, I can't recall any really big uh, opposing generals sitting down and just having dinner with each other. I mean, Wellington, Napoleon, Rommel, Patton, I mean, any, any of that, like MacArthur, Yamamoto, I mean, I can't recall history, any instances of that. Did we have, did we have any moments during the uh, Peloponnesian Wars or Persian Wars? I can't, I can't, I'm not sure that there, there was never a, an example of this. I can't recall one either, though. I mean, maybe That'd be, be an interesting question. Ever. Yeah, I, I can recall some examples where they'd have a parlay. They would ride out together and talk for maybe 10 minutes yeah. with the bunch of guys with them. But, yeah. but to sit down yeah. over dinner in a kind of a neutral environment, <clears throat> I, I've never heard of that before. Yeah. Maybe like in the 30 years of war, that, 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 was, like that. that was my favorite part. Right there. Okay. That's great. Yeah, thank you, Harry. That was a really, really well done. Appreciate you sharing that. All right, does um, did did anybody have a passage from the debate between Scipio and Quintus uh, Fabius Maximus or Fabius Maximus Quintus or whatever his name is? I can't at the moment remember which order his name comes yeah. in. <laughs> Quintus Fabius Maximus, okay. Well, well I can say... I thought they were both very persuasive. When I was reading the, the Quintus Fabius part, I thought, you know, Scipio's not that great a guy. No, yeah. Scipio came over his part, he goes, no, actually he is. Yeah. So I, thought, I thought they were really great pieces of uh, rhetoric with speech giving. Yeah. Well, I'll share a few of right. my... I'm sorry, go ahead. Who was I that? Who was that? I had yeah, go two... Ahead. In the tip for ten that goes on here, I had two passages... Okay, uh, great. First, first is the shot Fabius gives out on page 502. Bottom right. of that top paragraph. Okay, hang on a minute. Let's all get there. 502. Who is speaking? It's Alan. This is Alan. Who? Alan. A-L-A-N. Alan. Okay, thanks. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. By the way, Alan... Um, uh, Therese also works for the federal government, FYI. Alan uh, works part-time for FEMA. He's called out when there's emergencies, and he's in Missouri right now in the aftermath of the flooding. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. Uh, uh, so the passage at the bottom of that paragraph is Fabius, is, I think, it true uh, by Libby, his first real shot at... Uh, the facade he's built around Scipio. It reads, although you cherish glory already acquired more than glory you hope to acquire, not even you would take greater pride in having freed Spain rather than Italy from the war. Um, I gotta find it. And if you go oh, you're in the middle of the page 502. Right. Yeah, at the bottom of that last sentence of the paragraph. Right, of the first paragraph, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep, I love that sentence, yep. At then you go to page 506. Yep. 
uh, paragraph 43, or chapter 43, um, and it's near the bottom. It says, I, I, and this is now the shot back from Scipio. I certainly do not hide my despair, my desire, not only to achieve your renown, Quintus Davis, but if you forgive me for saying so, even to surpass it if I can. So let's talk about, that's one of the most interesting passages right there, in my opinion. Alan, what, what do you think of Scipio saying that? Right, bold face. Look, well, look, old man. <laughs> I, I not only want to equal your renown, I want to surpass it. I think, if I think about Livy and his earlier writings, I mean, he's, he's written a whole political history of Rome. Right. He is very much against kings. And I think this is, he put these words in Scipio's mouth yeah. to indicate that Scipio had an overwhelming desire uh, to essentially you know, you know, run the uh, empire because or run the uh, republic because it goes back to the end of uh, uh, Fabius' comments, uh, which is at the top of page 506, where he says, Fabius says, and I think that armies have been raised for protection of the city in Italy, not for consuls to take over to any part of the world they chose with King. They choose with king-like arrogance. So I think this is Livy's way of saying Scipio's beginning to act like a king. Thank you very much. And those are the words that I believe he's putting into uh, into uh, uh, Scipio's mouth. Yeah. So I so I I have some thoughts, but before I share those, what 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 do other people think about that passage and what Alan is is saying here? Uh, this is Harry. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, real quick, my, my impression was you got two massive egos flashing here, and <clears throat> once in a while they'll throw in some stuff. Um, for instance, uh, there's some discussion here um, about well, you know, we can't support two armies at the same time operating independently in two different continents, and we have no reserves to keep our fleets up, and so they tie it back to some resources and stuff like that. It's really two big egos clashing. And uh, it'd be interesting to see the political piece of this, who's, who's aligned with whom, who hates whom, and whose families are aligned with whom. But that was my impression. Two massive egos just like icebergs colliding in the ocean. Right. So you're saying that it's... So I'd love to use your yeah. passages... Well, these these are these are among my favorite passages. This debate between Quintus, Fabius Maximus, and um, and Scipio, and I think that just, I'll just tell you my thought on this on this one point where Scipio says, you know, <laughs> I want to surpass you, big guy. Um, as far as I understand, in Roman politics, it was very much acceptable. You know, it was there weren't really. Um, Political parties, as such, yes, there. Later on in the Republic, there were 
these, you know, groups of populares versus optimates and, you know, broadly speaking, the Senate versus the populace, but but it was it was quite acceptable and understood that you were always out for your own glory and that that was that was not something to be ashamed of or to hide and i thought you know um you know uh so i'm not i'm not sure if i thought that that livy was saying that scipio here was attempting to be a king it's an interesting point of view and certainly that is um that is of a, a, a very um um, loaded accusation in Rome, um, and so perhaps perhaps you're right. But I I was thinking more that um, he was simply showing Scipio's uh, naked ambition, which w which was not something uh, something to be hidden. Uh, on the other hand, I do think that Livy was not altogether accepting of Scipio's strategy at points, including. The, in this debate, I mean, uh, you know, Quint, Quint, I like Quintus. When Quintus, for example, says on page 501, um, let me tell you where on the page it is, on page 501. Um, let's see, uh, first full paragraph, kind of a third of the way down the page, uh, Quintus says, I feel I can feel no regret that other people's strategy inevitably appears more appealing at first sight, but mine proves better in practice. Um, and this notion that you know uh, he, you know, he, he's kind of arguing. Look, I have a long-term perspective. I don't care if you, you know, uh, 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 other shiny baubles or you know, others' fads or glittering words might 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 be more appealing, but but what I'm suggesting is a better is a better long-term course. And then he says a little bit further down the page, I prefer to have actions, not words. Uh, well, remember he was referring to that point in time when he was um, when the Senate decided that even though he was then counsel that his ma or dictator actually that his master of horse was going to be at the same level as him uh, and have and be and he would have to split his army with this guy that the Quintus um, basically didn't fight the Senate on it and he preferred to have his actions not words bring his master and horse in short order to acknowledge freely that I was his superior which indeed is what happened um, I am inclined I like I like Quintus's um, sort of more thoughtful kind of <laughs> value investing approach to strategy, if you will, um, and um, uh, more long-term oriented than I think Scipio. And what, what, what Livy doesn't talk about in the text, and I don't quite know what Livy thinks about, but I, I, I get a sense of, he hints at, in my opinion, is that, um, look, we know what happens, right? Um, I, I mean, you, maybe not everyone's read Book Thirty, but you probably know that the Romans. I hope. I hope this is spoiler alert. Romans win the Second Punic War here, and um, Scipio is uh, is victorious. But um, but I think this. I, I think this is interesting to reflect upon, which is that 
you know, just because a rash or foolhardy action is successful does not uh, mean it was the correct decision to take. And uh, it is true that Scipio's decision to move over to Africa, it all worked out in the end. But, um, but I, think it's an, I think it's still an interesting question whether it was, if we had to do it over again and we didn't have the benefit of hindsight, if we put ourselves back in the shoes of the Romans at that moment with the debate in the Senate between Quintus Fabius Maximus and Scipio, which course of action seems more reasonable? To go after Hannibal, who's cornered in this one tiny section of Italy, and just smash him? Or uh, leave Hannibal there and go across to, to Africa, where, as Quintus points out, you'll you'll be fighting on the home turf where the Carthaginians will be defending their very city, um, which, by the way, had amazing walls to protect it. So, uh, so I, th those, are, those are my favorite passages, Therese, and some, some thoughts I have about that. I would I kind of I like your, your thoughts. I would kind of follow up. And if you go to page 510 in, in yeah. chapter four, uh, 45, yeah. That tells you that his, you know, Scipio's address was less favorably received. And then you got Quintus right. Fulvius, who I think gives, who gives the fulcrum of the, of the uh, point here. He's, he says uh, to um, Scipio, for you make it clear you are sounding out the Senate rather yeah. than consulting it. That's really and important. And you not immediately vote you the assignment. You want, you have a proposal for the people already drawn up. Da, 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 da. Right. If you don't get you so, what you want from us, you'll, you'll go to the people. Um, that's right. I mean, yeah. you're just consulting. I mean, you're not even consulting us. You are just yeah. sounding us out. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Any other comments on this, on this debate? Andre, where are you? You still looking up that Latin? Or are you back with us here? And um, I actually am um, going to send you a uh, an email. I've got the passage kind of parsed on two of these lines. I can talk to you about it. I don't know if you can forward it to everybody, but um, it has some really interesting word order and such. So I just sent it to you. And again, this is we're going back and looking at uh, chapter 23 in book right. 28. Let's see. 28, chapter 23. And I think this is my... One of my favorite, even though it's kind of gross, it's a bit, one of my favorite passages just from the description can, and the way Livy describes it. Well, I, I'll just make. Do you it mind really read? Brief. Can you read the Latin to us? We'd love to hear a little Latin. Yeah, would, you, yeah, would you mind? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Now remember this this part. It's like the second sentence. It's on page four seventy eight, and it says. Um, uh, Another grimmer kind of slaughter was going on in the city, right? So it says in Latin, foidior, more foul, more f just disgusting uh, kind of trucidatio, just, just slaughter was going on. And, and it goes on and says when, um, when uh, scores of weak and defenseless women, you know, harmless, they weren't harming anybody, the, the Latin words emphasize that, that they were completely innocent, being murdered by their own citizens, who are hurling bodies, most of them still breathing, onto a burning pyre. And this is where I kind of, uh, on, the, on this little email here, you can see the words, onto the burning pyre. 
Then you see the words many half-dead, which means bodies. Then the verb they would throw, and then the word bodies. So the words are, um, they tend to show the, 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 the heap, the, the randomness of the bodies being just piled up, you know. And, um, and then, of course, it goes on to talk more about it. Now, when the Romans show up, just a couple sentences on, when uh, the, the, the next paragraph, only when the massacre was finished did the Romans come on the scene, the first sight left them momentarily stunned. Then, then I look at this sentence, with the greed inherent in human nature. And that, that, that uh, phrase, you can see um, the greed in the line following the gold and silver that's interfulgens. Interfulgens is a word I have not seen before, and it means literally gleaming from inside, just gleaming outward, gleaming all around, I translated it. And um, it completely captures them by the greed. It's just, the word order is pretty awesome in, in this. I just in, shot this over to everybody. And just, so read, read us this, this um, read us these two passages oh, in, Latin? in Latin, and the one onto the pyre and then the gold and silver. Yeah, yeah let me read the pyre one. Okay, yeah. here we go, right? When, when, a, tri when, a, when a, a crowd of women, here it is, cum turbam feminarum puerorum que in bellum inermem que, just innocent, you know, kiwes, the citizens, sui caedere, we're just massacring them. And et in succensum rogum semianima, Cleraque in yegerent corpora. And that's when they throw the bodies, half dead bodies, on the pyre. Comma. Riwique sanguinis flamam orientem restinguere. They put out a fire with the own blood. I mean, it just sounds, you can hear the hissing of the fire on restinguerent, you know, with the blood yeah. dripping on it. Um, I know I kind of get into it a little too much. No, you don't. The, it's it it those <laughs> the it, the sound. It's amazing to hear. I love hearing the Latin. I think it really adds to that uh, passage to hear that in its original. Thank you, Andre. And and You're very well. read us the gold and silver gleaming all around. Oh yeah. Okay. And then this is in uh, sentence four. Dane cum aurum gold, argentum que silver, cum loreum aliarum interfulgens, aviditate, the, the greed, ingeni humani rapere ex igni vela. They were so crazy about getting this gold that they reached into the fire and burned themselves, and then eventually they couldn't get any of it. But just this gleaming all around, it's not just the flame, the heat, the white heat of it, it's their greed that's a fire, you know, it's flames coming out of them. Uh. And, you know, you can't translate that into English because it's in the word order, it's not in the actual meaning of the word. Right. You know? So, it's right. this, I'm so glad you picked this. Who picked this, by the way? This is a great, uh, great passage. Yeah, who was it that picked this? Scott. It was Scott. Yeah, this is this is great. I mean, this is the, this is the reason we learn Latin. Yeah, yeah. that is Scott. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Scott, for uh, for bringing that. And Andre, yeah, it's great to great to hear that. Yeah, it's, it's neat to hear the translation. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I mean, you can tell that the translator was working very hard at that point. So I figured that the, the Latin must have been very heavily worked as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's see. I don't think we've heard from Bill Swizzo. Uh, Bill, right?
or Josh Kirshner. Um, oh, I, I, I had a much uh, less uh, dramatic one. Uh, <laughs> hold on one second, sorry. Okay. I thought it was sort of cute, uh, sort of a sweet, a little bit of sweetness. But you have to give me a minute. I have to. I have to find my place, find where I have it. Uh, maybe the other one can go because it's taking a minute to... Yeah, Josh, what about you? Refresh. I, mine wasn't so much a favorite part, but I sort of uh, looking back to uh, Herodotus. On, on 453, there's a, there's a short uh, mention that uh, the, the Bothians uh, were reporting that this is at the top of page 453, uh, that the path that uh, Thermopylae um, yes. was being blocked by the Athenians um, with a ditch in the Palisades uh, in order to block Philip from getting through. Um, and it, I was just thinking back to Herodotus, where it, it, it's interesting to me that they didn't sort of mention that or provide any context, because obviously that's been an important part of the, the world in the past. Right. Um, and the first didn't have an issue with that because they just went around it. Right. So I'm not sure why Ditch and a Palisade was able to keep Philip um, from passing through. Right, and if the Persians were able to figure out that passage around, of course, Philip, who lived in the neighborhood, <laughs> would have known as well, right? Um, you, you'd think, everyone anyway. Everyone would have known, of course, at that time. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, you remind me that one of my favorite passages in that whole debate between Quintus, Fabius Maximus, and Scipio was a reference to the uh, to Alcibiades and Athens' decision during the Peloponnesian War to invade Sicily. Um, and so, so I don't know if you remember this, but but first Quintius brings it up uh, and says essentially, you know. We have an example of a you know of, a, of another young man headstrong going off and taking the normally prudent Athens uh, to uh, quit its war at home to cross to Sicily uh, with a large fleet, and then later when Scipio responds 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 he says well yeah now he's now that you know he's going to have to bring up this ancient history, <laughs> and I don't think we have to go back to all this old stuff. I mean, come on, uh, this is Rome. Um, but he, uh, no one mentioned the name Alcibiades. But those of us who who read Thucydides remembers Alcibiades quite well, and he he does as a rash young man, very smart, like Scipio, very smart, but 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 not a leader. I think the same way Scipio was. Uh, headstrong, more rash, and ran over, got defeated, then jumped sides to the Spartans, uh, and then kept hip hopping around. Ended up, at some point, working with the Persians, and then going back to the Athenians. <laughs> uh, and of course, he was also in Plato. Remember, Socrates had a crush on Alcibiades. It comes up in one of the uh, Platonic dialogues that we that we read. Anyway, Bill, did you find your passage? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's when uh, uh, Masinisa, Masinisa um, meets uh, Scipio. It's on page bottom of page four ninety three. Okay. Which is the negotiations? It says, but a deeper awe took hold of Masinisa 
when he saw him in the flesh. Scipio was indeed possessed of great natural dignity, but his flowing locks enhanced it, as did a physical appearance that owed nothing to grooming. It was quite the reverse, that of a real man and soldier. Just, you know, <laughs> that, that's sort of a, a, a different tone than, than most of the book, right? Where he's can, you, can you see the commercial? The commercial, we've got, what's this, an Axe commercial or a car commercial or something, or Marlboro yeah. Man? <laughs> Basically saying Scipio was a stud, right? He was a, he was a stud muffin, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and interestingly, you know, by implication, his, his looks may have actually had some influence on his ability to win over this key ally. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which, uh, not incidental to uh, to history, right? You know, and actually, by the it's, same token, when he shows himself to the uh, to the uh, mutineers, he's the same. The same thing. He's like this manly man, so he's like afraid of his look as much as his words. Yeah, yeah, that's a good yeah, point, Frank. He was about twenty eight years old, so you know, he was pretty. Uh, he could have been a he could have been a quarterback in the Super Bowl, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might have been. In fact, he could have been thirty nine and been a quarterback in the Super Bowl for uh, for all we all we know last Sunday. All right, well let's um let's just spend the last few minutes. Uh, we spent a lot of time in in book twenty eight. Of course, book twenty nine. Um, is uh, is also part of it. We did talk about the Locrians, which was also in Book Twenty Nine. We've talked a little bit about Syphax and and Massania and the the running around in Africa once uh, Scipio arrives. That's in Book Twenty Nine. Um, we we didn't really touch on the Idean mother, um, the statue that was brought to Rome from Pessinus, a town in Phrygia. Um, which had this, and, and she was delivered to the Romans by Attalus, the king of Asia, um, and received by Publius Scipio Nasica, the son of Gnaeus, who had perished in Spain, and the cousin, of course, of Scipio Africanus, uh, who was adjudged the best man by the Senate, because although he was a young man, had not yet been quaestor, the oracle commanded that uh, divinity should be received and consecrated by the best man, and they figured he was, he was somehow the best man. And um, I, I thought that was also interesting. I mean, one of the things that I think is imp is going on here at this moment in Roman history, if we sort of step back and look at the bigger picture, is is the globalization of, of Rome, if you will, at that time. And the fact that Rome was, I refer referenced this earlier, that they were, that they, that they had laws on the books that protected non-Romans in their treatment by Romans, which was a first in human history. And that they were so accepting of, 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 uh, and another element was how accepting they were of gods um, outside their own. Um, of course, you know, there's also the what they do with, with citizenship and the and the beginning of the expansion of, of, of citizenship, which which will continue to move apace past the, past the time frame of this um, of this history that we're reading. But I thought, in particular, what this idea and mother thing, and the way they relate to that God, um, and how seriously they take it, I think, un again, I think somewhat unique. I mean, it, in this sense, they were not the only ancient peoples who were willing to relate to the gods of others. But 
But there was something even more so true about the Romans and how how much they were um, uh, accepting and taking seriously of, of others outside of the sort of more strict sense of, of what it meant to be a Roman. Can I jump, can I jump in here, Phil, for yeah. a second? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this, just piggybacking off this Massinissa-Scipio kind of love fest. Yeah. Um, you know, Massinissa, like 50 years later, Scipio Emilianus, the grandson of Scipio Africanus, yeah. meets Massinissa, and it's the same thing again. You know, they admire each other. Massinissa is a staunch Roman ally loyal to the empire, and he is seen and looked upon by the Romans as the epitome of, you know, what an ally in the empire would be like. And it supposedly benefits both sides, the Romans and the, the kingdom of Numidia. So yeah. what you're saying is, like, it's really great. And, and I like what you said earlier about the, um, the fact that provinces had the right to appeal to Rome, and, and it was done. I mean, Cicero represented those, those uh, provinces sometimes. Yeah, he, well, one of his... the. He made his uh, he made his reputation. Cicero did by prosecuting the uh, the what was his name the former governor of of the Sicilian province who who basically just you know ripped everybody off when he was there. And Cicero was yeah. so successful in the first two weeks of his prosecution that the guy just fled into exile. Didn't even bother to mount a defense. He decided that. Uh, uh, and that just, you know, that was Cicero's first great victory and put him on his way. But but what's interesting is that the people of that province were able to successfully uh, petition. Now, of course, you had to have enough money to get yourself to Rome and hire uh, uh, someone like a Cicero to uh, prosecute a um, your case. But um, But nonetheless, that was still a first in the ancient world. And I think... Um, I think interesting to reflect upon at this moment in, in human history that we that we find ourselves in today. Um, cool. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. This is Stuart. I, I point out an irony, though. I mean, you know, the Romans were sort of it, it emerges in, in sort of episode after episode. They're sort of contemptuous of the character of the barbarians or the, yeah. the Carthaginians. Uh, yeah. In fact, I just want to. Um, if I may, point out one thing that I found sort of an interesting contradiction. Uh, Scipio in the in the speech to uh, um, Quintus, uh, you know, makes this point about how he could invade Africa, the Carthaginians. Uh, the Carthaginian has no might in his citizenry, using as he does African and Numidian mercenaries, intrinsically capricious people prone to switching allegiance. I just want to go back for a second, if, if it's okay. Yeah. To, uh, 463, yeah. where there's a description of Hannibal, and it talks about the fact that he has an army of mercenaries. Oh, this is a great passage. Says, um, it's a great passage, yeah. You know, I really love that You know, passage. he had been fighting yeah. a war in his enemy's country so far from home over a period of 13 years with mixed success. He had an army that was not made up of his own countrymen, but was a mix, mixture scraped together from all nations with no shared features in terms of law, culture, or language. They were dissimilar in appearance and in dress, with different arms, religious rites and practices, and almost with different gods. But he fused them together with some sort of bond so successfully that there was never any seditious behavior, contrary to what happened with Scipio's uh, um, right. with the Romans. 
right. were amongst the men themselves or towards their commander, despite the fact that in enemy territory, Hannibal was often short of money for their pay and short of provisions as well. I, I guess I'm just saying that I find it interesting that there are all kinds of presumptions about the character of the, the, the North Africans and the mercenaries and, and Hannibal and the Carthaginians, which don't really hold up necessarily um, from the point of view of how the, uh, the war is represented. Yes, and, and let's just, you know, we talk about the leadership of Scipio, right? Um, but isn't, isn't that remarkable, that passage you read on page 463, where Livy, remember it's Livy, of course, writing this, saying that Hannibal had somehow fused together as this with some sort of bond so successfully there was never any seditious behavior. Remember, Scipio faced seditious behavior, either amongst the men themselves or toward their commander, despite the fact they, they had no food or very little pay or didn't get paid half the time. So how did, how did Hannibal do that? And um, it's, um, it's never really fully explained by Livy, except I think through this tantalizing passage right here. Um, but I think, I, I thank you for bringing that up. It is a terrific, it's a terrific passage. Um, and I think points to part of, you know, Livy has so much bad to say about Hannibal's character Yet somehow, something in that character, he, he did something that very few people are able to do, right? Uh, that's very difficult to fuse together a disparate group of people and keep them happy even without uh, pay or very much food. Um, yeah. that's, it's, it's really quite remarkable. And, I, you know, look, in saying that the Romans were the first civilization to allow non-citizens to petition for redress in their courts against citizens and so forth. I don't mean to suggest that the Romans were not barbarous, <laughs> vicious themselves. I mean, it was the world that they were in. Everyone, you know, it, I don't mean to pretty them up. I just mean to say it's an important innovation in the history of, of, of human uh, civilization that it's really the first time that we see an example of something like that. Um, and, you know, they, they, I think they did it because they understood that it would, um, would allow them to, uh, to be more effective at running an empire. I, I don't think they did it out of um, some uh, humanity or humane or even moral code, although there was a morality in Rome and, and there was a tension uh, there, there really were, um, there were people who, who were quite unhappy with some of, uh, some of what, and that that'll be a theme over the next couple hundred years. But, but anyway, yeah. Thanks for bringing up that that important passage about Hannibal's leadership. Yeah, right. another thing is, is can I say this? Yeah. Um, as as more citizens came to Rome from outside of Italy and became consuls and, and such. Yeah. Then they, they they had more sympathy for the provinces, yeah. and um, and actually worked even better later. So. Right, right. It's interesting. Okay, well, what's next? All right, so we're going to meet next month. We're going to talk about book thirty. Um, we have a date for that already. Let's just remind ourselves what it is. Uh, let's see. What I'm pulling up my thing here. It's March fifteenth. That's a Tuesday at um, 8 p.m. I'm going to get one of our scholars on the phone with us, answer questions, as well as discuss chapter 30, book 30, excuse me.
Um, Bill Swislow and I have just put in a proposal for some activities that the Reading Odyssey would um, would hopefully do around the publication of the landmark Caesar. Um, I got that over to Bob Strassler today, who's the uh, founder of the Landmark series, and um, uh, he and I will be in dialogue about sort of what 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 we can expect to do and um, you know, w what funding sources we might be able to get to um, produce online lecture series as well as offline uh, events and and programs and so forth. Um, the publication date is still not yet set. Uh, they're shooting for the end of this year, but it may be next year uh, for Caesar. And um, I need to. We're gonna we're gonna skip the month of April. Then we'll come back together in May. And I need to get uh, back to you guys soon with um, the proposed text. That you know, so I'm gonna pick something to read from May through the end of the year. Maybe skipping a month during the summer or so forth, and then uh, and then getting ready for the uh, for the for Caesar. So that's the update on my side. Um, cool. All right. So you'll go tackle book 30 if you haven't read it already. If you have, read it again. And we'll meet on Tuesday, the Ides of March. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, folks, right, thanks. tonight. Great conversation. Yeah. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Right.